Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The nineteen sixteen. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, a collaboration. Today, we are joined by Mark Painter of the History of the 20th Century podcast. Mark Painter's a great guy, and if you don't know his podcast, I strongly recommend you check it out, because it's one of those podcasts that give you a lot of detail, but also don't bombard you with facts. Tells a good story, but also engages in a healthy amount of self-depreciation, and doesn't take himself too seriously. He's also, as you will gather by my surprise during the early parts of this episode, a good deal older than you might expect, but thankfully I avoided insulting him in that count. So, I hope you guys enjoy it. This is only the second collaboration episode I've done so far, but I recorded this a good while ago, so I hope it still stands up to the task. I, for one, had a great time talking with Mark, and I'd like to thank him again for his significant role in bringing more parts of the Russo-Japanese War to life. It was great to rely on his experience and expertise, so to speak, in the era. And I'm sure this isn't the last you've seen of him. Don't forget to check out the History of the 20th Century podcast, historyofthe20thcentury.com. Now, back to this collaboration episode at hand. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy... Yet another aspect of When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. (laughs) 
I suppose just introduce yourself, Mark. Who, who is Mark Painter and, and what does he do and why should we care? <laughs> well, I am Mark Painter and I am the host of the History of the 20th Century podcast, available on iTunes and all the other usual places. Great. On my own podcast, I did a six-part series on the Russo-Japanese War. And so I'm here today to discuss the war with you, Zach. Mm, lucky, lucky me. <laughs> well, thanks. I have to thank you in advance for coming on. I've not, I'm not going to say jealous, but I was, well, actually, yeah, I suppose jealous is the right way to put it. I mean, five years ago, I would have loved to have started a podcast on the 20th century because the era always fascinated me so much. But, but to me, I wouldn't have been able to have the time or, or patience, really, to focus on the important stuff that you focus on. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not just covering wars, are you? You're covering actual human being stuff like culture <laughs> and, and events that happen that don't just involve people dying or attacking other people. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we all have our podcasts and we all have our own take on things. And When Diplomacy Fails is about when diplomacy fails. Sure. Right? <laughs> but my, my, my angle on the history of the 20th century is to be interdisciplinary, mm. to talk about politics and diplomacy and war, but also talk about arts and culture and music and scientific advancement, and uh, with an eye toward how these things interrelate. Because I think when history is taught formally in school, now, I, you know, I'm pretty old, hopefully they do a better job of it now than they did <laughs> in my day, but when they teach history in school, they tend to compartmentalize. Mm. You know, if they t Standard history is history of wars and diplomacy and what powerful people in the country were doing. And if there's art history or music history or the history of science, that's taught separately in a separate course. And um, there's little opportunity to discuss how these things interrelate. And sure. so that, that was my interest and my goal in creating the History of the 20th Century podcast. Mm -hmm. And do you really, I mean, we all, like the 20th century is like, to, like, it's really like it is the century, really. I mean, so much happened and so many things happen which like still affect us today profoundly. Like it really shaped our world as we know it. So are you looking forward to any, <laughs> uh, are you looking at any events in particular? I mean, the Second World War is the obvious one, but are you looking at any events in particular and thinking, well, let's be, let's be positive. First of all, are you thinking about anything you're really looking forward to doing? Well, many things. Yeah, World, world War II is a big one. I, you know, I, I don't think that far ahead. In terms of the episodes that have released, I'm still working my way toward the Great War, uh, which I like to call the Great War because I like to stay in timeline. You know, sure. I don't I don't like to talk about what we know is going to happen in the future. I like to talk in terms of what the people at that moment knew. Um, so we're on the run up to the Great War, and I'm thinking about the Great War, and I'm starting to sketch out the interwar period and what to talk about at the interwar period. But that's about as far as I got. Obviously, World War II is a big subject, but it's something I've already had an interest in and have studied a great deal. And once you get to the other side of World War II, um, you're getting into times that I actually remember. And uh, so, you know, it was an ambitious thing to you know, it was a big bite to take the history of the 20th century. But part of my thinking was, well, I've actually lived through a lot of this history. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so so once we get to the other side of World War II, I can actually give a personal perspective. And wow. that's worth something, too. Okay, cool. Wow. Well, you don't sound like you're a Cold War kid anyway. You sound more, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know what someone would sound like if they were kind of born just after World War Two. But now I, I'm picturing now an, an old, wise and, and wizened man sitting in front of the computer. I'm and going to be 60 in a couple months. You're not. Are you serious? Wow. I am serious. Wow. That's, uh, that's very impressive. That's old. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Who knew? I know. I really didn't know. You have a very young voice. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you. I feel young on the inside. Oh, well, that's what matters. You know, I think it was Terry Pratchett who once said, inside every old person is a young person saying, what happened? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm 25 and I'm already saying that. So, Oh, <laughs> uh, well, well, yeah, that's that's interesting. Wow, Jenny Mack, Mark, I would not have, I would not have, uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> anyway, I better change the subject before I find a way to offend you in some way. Um, so we're here on to talk today about the uh, Russo-Japanese War. Um, it is a war you covered yourself in far more detail than I did myself. Uh, was there anything, when, when you were coming up to the kind of point when you were about to cover it, what, what, what was kind of running through your mind well, there's a story behind this, Zach. And, uh, when I was the age you were, um, when you did your episode, when I was 20 years old, podcasting wasn't a thing yet, so I mm. needed to do something. So I was interested in tabletop war games. Oh, yeah. That was something I was very much interested in when I was in college, and that was kind of the golden age of tabletop war games. Computers hadn't come in yet. Once computers came in, playing complicated games on the tabletop kind of went away. But anyway... And uh, I, I was 19 or 20 when they came out with a game on the Russo-Japanese War. And this fascinated wow. me because I had never heard of it. <laughs> right. Here I was. I was a high school graduate. I was a uh, sophomore at an Ivy League university in the United States. Wow. And I was not aware that the Russo-Japanese War had happened. And, um, you know, in playing the game and reading the materials that went along with it, it struck me that... This was a very important event in the early 20th century, and it explains a lot about what came later, and you really think people sh who are interested in the history of the 20th century really ought to know about this. Yeah. I was quite surprised that it was so obscure. Yeah, it's, it is. Uh, in a sense, it really is a bit of an obscure war, because uh, like, especially if people are, are mapping out the the kind of the First World War in their head, or if they're just looking at the main events even, they might just skim over the war. And in fact, until I was kind of, until my historical interest reached nerdy levels, I didn't really even know about the Russo-Japanese War. To me, to me, Japan was just World War II, that was it. But obviously that's not the case. And when you look into it, you find that this war, I mean, arguably, I mean, it's, there was a, a good few wars that actually happened on small scale before the First World War, so it's hard to really say that this was the most important, but certainly as a stepping stone or as something which profoundly affected the international system, it was really, really important. So as, as you came to covering this war, what, what kind of things did you really want to get into in more detail? Was there anything that profoundly like, interested you more than anything else? Well, I, one of the things that's really important about this is the rise of Japan. Sure. And if you're yeah. looking at the history of the 20th century, especially in um, East Asia and the Pacific, the, the rise of Japan from an obscure minor power to a global power or, or major power is uh, quite a remarkable story. And um, this war is an important step in that process. Mm. You know, being, a, being an American, of course, um, when we think of World War II, the, the fight against Japan is important. Pearl Harbor is a hugely important 
um, event, not just in American history, but you know, in in our in our political culture and the way we think about ourselves. Of course, yeah. And um, like when we tell this story of World War II and Japan, we usually start in the 30s with Japan's war against China. Mm-hmm. But how did Japan get to the place where it was? It felt ready to take on China and the United States. Yeah. You know, how did that happen? And the answer is, look back here. Mm. It's the Japanese war. Yeah, yeah. So, so we kind of established that it, it's, it's very important for, for Japan's kind of coming into its fore, if you like. But when, when you started to look into it then, did you have a... I know you're, you're one for kind of planning ahead as I mm-hmm. kind of gathered, as I like to be wherever possible. Did you have a, did you have an idea in your head of how long this was going to go when you started it? Um, everything I do takes longer than I thought it was going to do yeah. when I started. I thought two or three episodes when I got going on it. But, um, you know, I, I, in my own podcast, I take an interest in details. And if I think a detail is interesting, I will put it in the podcast, you know, even if it doesn't seem crucial to the story. Yeah. If I think it's interesting, I put it in. So if you're the sort of person who is interested in the sort of things that I'm interested in, you'll like my podcast. And if you're not, maybe you'll find my podcast a little tedious. But that's that's how it goes, right? I think I think that's the nature of podcasting as a medium, though, because we have to make judgment calls about what we find interesting and what, well, maybe not necessarily all the time we think other people will like. But, I mean, I'm one for tangents. I love putting in facts that really fascinate me but that might not necessarily go with the story very well and then of course you have to make an awkward segue back into the actual subject matter itself but yeah i think it comes with the territory of of actually podcasting when you are yourself looking into the resources and the materials and everything and you come across an interesting fact you didn't really know about you're like you feel compelled to share it and i think in a way that's that that says a lot about history itself that we that we are interested enough in it and fascinated by it enough to to be passionate enough to share such to share such facts really and i think that's a good thing above all that we are so so passionate to get excited like about about simple things and simple tangents um and i think that's what makes podcasts personal and what makes them great as well yes that's definitely it's it, it's very much a personal thing and uh, that's the reason why you know, for, for example, you and I, I've, I've joked with you as I approach the Great War. I've joked with you about, hey, the July crisis is coming. I'm moving into your turf. <laughs> but the thing is, it, it's not an either or. You can listen yeah. to Zach Twomley's take on the July crisis, and you can listen to Mark Painter's take on the July crisis, and um, they'll be very different, and they'll emphasize different things because different things interest each of us. Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh... – one thing, and now I had to, I had to stop myself. But at the time, I'd, I'd only just finished the July crisis, and I was pretty chuffed with myself with the way that it went and everything else. I was patting myself on the back a good bit, and then Dan Carlin started his blueprint for Armageddon thing. Now it's his blueprint for Armageddon that basically covered the First World War in its entirety from the July crisis onwards, um, and he did obviously a very good job. Of course, it was audiobook length, is <laughs> many many hours. But uh, I had to stop myself from being like, oh, it's so unfair how he basically stole my idea. (laughs) He stole my war. He stole my topic. And now look how well he's doing. I did this first kind of thing. I mean, 
Janie Mack, like the the idea that I have a monopoly on certain parts of history or that I should be annoyed when someone like Dan Carlin is helping people to get engaged with history, which for me is one of the major goals is to get people interested and get people like looking into things more than they would have done normally had they not had podcasting. And that's what Dan Carlin does really well. And I, I had to kick myself for begrudging him for his success. <laughs> do you ever... um? Do you ever find yourself uh, coming into that kind of those feelings or anything like that? Do you ever find yourself reluctantly uh, saying, OK, they did a good job, too. We can both be podcasters. Well, I haven't been at it as long as you have. So my experience is usually I'm coming on a topic that someone else has already covered and I'm oh. feeling a little intimidated. Like ah. they already did this so well. Do I have something to do? <laughs> my, my latest episode that I released last week was on t- the sinking of Titanic. Right. Okay. And I, I approached that episode with a great deal of trepidation because so many people have talked so much about the Titanic. There are books and movies. What do I have to add to the story? You know, of course. Like, well, yeah. I'm I'm foolish to even try this, but I feel <laughs> like I have to. I feel like it's it's very much in you know in the in the realm of what my podcast is about. I have to cover this story. So I I was very intimidated when I went into it, but I was quite pleased by mm. the end because I thought. This is not just a Titanic story. This is the history of the 20th century take on the Titanic story. And that's what makes it unique. And not that I've said everything there is to say about Titanic, but I said it in the history of the 20th century way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think I think we have to as much as I don't I, I have to stop myself from begrudging people. We have to be confident enough to say I have a story that's worth telling. And I have a story that is worth telling through my medium and through my style. And that's what will make it different. Uh, and like we can't like if we doubt ourselves we'll never cover anything because it's like the simpsons did a thing all over again someone's guaranteed to have covered it somewhere if not in book form then like i don't know the exception might be the weird kind of history stuff that i'm looking into like the 17th century stuff is not as well attended to historically like in studies as say the 20th century might be but it's the same kind of principle you have to you have to just reassure yourself a lot that what you're doing is worthwhile but anything that's worth doing is worth doing right and i think when you have a formula and you know that you have because your podcast would be a very high quality one i know from listening to it so you have to have you stick to your own standards and i think you define yourself by those standards so that you can say to yourself yes other people have done this but i know for myself i know deep down that i put out a good quality product and there's no reason why someone wouldn't want to listen to it, even if they think they know the euro well. Absolutely, and uh, you know, in case of when diplomacy fails, you you come you come from an academic perspective. It's mm. it's a it's a very academic oriented podcast, and you are really delivering, you know, graduate student level analysis of history to those of us who don't have that academic background and making it and making it accessible that is no small thing Mm. well now i have i did get accepted into cambridge (laughs) and oxford now you know i just what can can i say i'm just yeah i like the the whole uh (laughs) yeah i know i think that like i've been i've had people ask me can they cite me in an essay before and i don't think that's really possible to do but <laughs> the fact that they considered me any kind of authority on anything at all like it's in my head i'm literally just reading materials and regurgitating them in a kind of accessible way so to me 
it doesn't really feel like I'm doing it academically, but I suppose, and then at the same time, when someone says, oh, it's really, it's very academic, thank you, Zach, I'm like, yes, you're very welcome, I did that on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, yeah, you can, um, I'll happily, I'll happily take that compliment, absolutely, I will. (laughs) Well, it's the combination of rigorous academic standards and accessibility to Mm, non-experts. That's, that's really that's Zach Twombly. That's when diplomacy fails. That's your niche. Oh, yeah. Well, I do try. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, we both maintain very high standards in our podcasts. Is there any podcasts particularly that you think people should know about, but that maybe aren't that well known? Or is there any podcasts you'd really kind of like to big up because you've been enjoying them lately? I guess my taste in podcasts is pretty um, mundane. I'm Probably don't listen to anything that your listeners haven't already heard of. (laughs) Obviously, Mike Duncan and Revolutions and Robin Pearson and the History of Byzantium Mm. and and When Diplomacy Fails. Those are are the big three history podcasts that I listen to. And the British History Podcast. Mm, mm. I'm I'm just getting – that's a long one and I'm just getting going on it. Yeah. I wish I could listen to more podcasts. Uh, it, there's a limit because, of course, my own podcast takes up a lot of my time. I'm also working on a novel, and uh, that takes up some time, too. And I have family. Mm, so, yeah. yeah. Life gets in the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. Do you find that you, uh, you used to listen to more podcasts before you became a podcaster? Because I really found that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, because some of the time that I used to have available for listening, I'm now spending writing and and releasing episodes. I know, uh, yeah. It's funny, really, because there was a kind of, I don't want to say podcast revolution, but between about 2012 and 14, a whole load of kind of new podcasters kind of came around or made themselves kind of more public and, and presentable. And also Dan Carlin really took off more than he had before. And I think from the backbone, from the foundations of that, you got loads more podcasts on obscure things like on like say the history of Bulgaria or like the history of Islam or like the history of naval warfare and like things that really, really fill in the niche. And to me I'm kind of annoyed because it's like all of those things sound really interesting, but if there was ever a time that I wished that I wasn't a podcaster so I could listen to more podcasts, then it's now. But obviously, while listening to them, all I'd be thinking about is, oh, I should really do that episode or I should record that <laughs> script and that kind of thing. It's like the, it's like the, the background kind of the kind of whispering into you, shouldn't you be more productive right now? Kind of thing. <laughs> it's like I can never get away with that. But yeah, um, so I think we should actually talk about the Russia-Japanese War. I went on a bit of a bit of a tangent here, but I think that it's good for people to know who who Mark Painter is and what makes him tick and how he gets on with podcasting and all that kind of stuff. When you when you started researching this episode, what kind of struck you about? Now this feels more like I'm interviewing you than than a kind of. Well, I suppose it's it's sort of mutual. But if you ever want to ask me any questions about it, go right ahead. But I'm just gonna ask you. When when you were inter- when you were uh, researching this episode, what kind of struck you about the position of Russia at this time? Did you uh, did you expect to see it as as it was in the international system, and by that I mean like as as the de facto enemy of Britain, uh, expanding quite aggressively abroad, especially after the Boxer Rebellion kind of made it more ambitious. It was building railways. It was trying to expand into Manchuria. It wasn't really respecting much international agreements, except when it came to those with France, because it needed French money. It seemed 
to all, for all intents and purposes, like a, a colossus that kind of just spread all over the world. There's a great propaganda piece, well, a great a great image in one of the London, I think it's Punch magazine. It just presents Russia as a kind of octopus with tentacles just reaching into every corner of the world. Of the world, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great image. Were you were you surprised with how kind of all over the place Russia seemed? Well, again, from my perspective of studying history in school when I was young, um, with regard to the Soviet Union, which was an ongoing concern when I was young, sure. and then the Russian Empire before that, when you looked at maps, historical maps, the, the borders of Russia were always pretty much the same going as far back as into the 19th century. I, I guess for me it was a revelation that it was only about 1860 that Russia had advanced as far southeast mm. as it is today. Now, you know, again, being an American, all Americans are well acquainted with the story of Russian America. The Russian expansion had gone so far east that it crossed the Bering Strait and the Russians controlled a piece of North America, which, of course, they eventually sold to the United States. In 1867, uh, 1867, yes, during the Andrew Johnson administration. But, uh, you know, again, from, from the American point of view, that we, we tell that story and, hey, um, Secretary of State Seward was derided in his own time. It was called Seward's Folly by his political opponents. But, you know, in hindsight, it was a pretty sweet deal for the United States. Yeah. I came to recognize in talking about the Russo-Japanese War and Russian expansion that that was an important moment, 1867, because that was shortly after um, Russia had expanded farther south and it had taken outer Manchuria away yeah. from China mm-hmm. and controlled the Pacific coast all the way down to Korea. So there's actually a, a small border between Russia and Korea along the Pacific coast of Asia, completely shutting China out from that wow. piece of coastline. That was 1860, I believe, was when Vladivostok was founded. And 1867 was the sale of Russia in America. Because you, So you see there very clearly the Russian government has made the decision that further expansion north and east, there's just nothing there. The Arctic Arctic lands, there's just nothing there that's worth exploiting. And a, you know, a conscious decision to turn attention south. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That there's more potential, there are benefits, there's more, there's more wealth, there's more power in expanding southeast yes, toward, yeah. toward China. Yeah, and, and Japan. Think, yeah. And that puts Japan right in Russia's sights, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I think a big part of it as well, with the Crimean War only ending in 1856 and Russia essentially being rebuffed from expansion into the Mediterranean or mm-hmm. at least into the Black Sea area with Sevastopol and everything else. Because you always had, which I found interesting, up to about the First World War, you had two major parties in the Russian kind of government, if you like. One always argued for Eastern expansion and how it would be great to expand Russian Imperium over that area. And the other one argued for the idea of pan-Slavism, which basically argued that, well, it kind of translated itself into expansion into Europe and putting heads with the Austro-Hungarians or the Germans who were also trying to have their own kind of uh, empire over there. So I thought it was interesting that the, the tides of war really affected those parties. And we'll come back to this, but how much Russia was affected domestically by this war and by the Crimean War as well. How after the Crimean War, for example, Asian party was in the ascendant because the European Pan-Slavist party was kind of, I mean, they couldn't really do very much or, or be really very influential because obviously Russia had been rebuffed in the Crimea, so it couldn't go in that direction. But then after the Russo-Japanese War, the Pan-Slavists were back in the ascendant again because 
the Far Eastern Party had been kind of shown up with the loss to Japan. So that meant then that, that Russia came to be more a- ambitious and try to expand more in Europe then. And then, of course, we all know what happened because of that. But I just think that the, the common theme in Russia of kind of two parties, and then, of course, you have the Tsar in the middle of all this, how, how he reacts to it all. I mean, I suppose we can just talk about the, the revolution itself. I wouldn't even call it a revolution as a, as a pre-pre-revolution, because in 1917 there was the Russian Revolution, and then there was the kind of sort of communist revolution, if you mm-hmm. like. So this was the revolution before that, which was also before the communist one. So, 1905, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, when they established the Duma and everything else. But were you expecting to see Russia crumble kind of domestically? Were you surprised to see how kind of fraught it was internally because Russia always presented this very kind of impregnable image and even today Russia does with Putin and and the like they present this image of the strong man of Europe kind of thing so I think that really intimidated Britain and, and British policy around this time was geared towards the idea that Russia was insurmountable as, as an opponent and they just couldn't be defeated so what do we do but of course the reality was underneath it was tearing itself apart with all the divisions it had and autocracy wasn't as big a deal as it used to be and the czar wasn't very popular and all that kind of thing but sorry back to my question (laughs) um did that surprise you when you looked into it how much of a straw man russia actually turned out to be deep down well there's a couple things that i notice about that a couple patterns one is that during this period of history with industrialization and the immiseration of the working class that all of the major powers are wrestling with domestic social issues well, you know, inequality of wealth and economic growth that doesn't seem to be benefiting the lower classes of people. Every country is dealing with that. Russia is dealing with that. Germany is dealing with that. Britain and the United States and France, everyone is dealing with this. And how they deal with it tells you a lot about the system of government in each country. Sure. And one of this, the other, my other observation about Russia, which I, I believe I made in the, my, in the course of my series on the war, is that the, the Russian people show a long heritage of a surprising willingness to um, support the country at the expense of their own personal comfort and well-being. Right. In in ways that a lot of us Westerners find, uh, frankly, astonishing. But the quid pro quo for that is Russian people like to see the Russian government taking their sacrifices and using them for the good of the country. Of course, yeah. When the Russian people sacrifice and they see a corrupt and incompetent government frittering away... All that the, all that the, the people have given them to work with, mm. then they get very angry and understandably so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, like incompetent, I think, is the key word. And I think that shocked that shocked me as well to see. I mean, they just expected, I think, Japan to roll over. And racism comes into it as well, of course. The idea. Oh, absolutely. That, that, absolutely. And you, you, must have, you must have unearthed a whole treasure trove of racist gems when you were looking into this. Because even the, the stuff that I did five years ago, I, I was amazed by how blatantly racist the whole era was. And I think that was because I didn't know it as well as I like to think I know it now. But at the time, I just couldn't believe how how they used to talk about Asian people as just so resoundingly like inferior. And like Russia, had it been against a different power, Russia probably would have tried harder. Maybe the Russian government just didn't expect the Japanese to be as strategic as they were. Do you think that really comes into it a lot? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I you know in my podcast, I wrestle with this. It was a very racist time. 
I actually feel uncomfortable repeating some of the things that people said in those days on my podcast because it is so it is so terrible. I don't even want to say these things out loud, but you have to you have to acknowledge the racism or else you can't understand the periods. So that's a tricky balance for a podcaster to walk. Mm. And I kind of feel because we're a we're a spoken word medium, saying these things out loud there's more emotional intensity than if you were writing a book of and you're quote, quoting them in a book. Um, yeah. And so that's, that makes me uncomfortable sometimes in my podcast, like how to walk that line. The other thing about Japan that we need to note is how rapidly Japan had advanced from essentially mm-hmm. a medieval culture in yeah. 1850 yeah. to a power capable of taking on the Russian Empire by 1905. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a remarkable, we could say, unprecedented yeah. Development in Just human history. Partly. Yeah, I was going to say, apart from racism, which would very definitely you know, influence their thinking, if the, if the Russian government found it hard to believe that Japan had really come so far. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So fast, that's understandable. Mm. But the, yeah, actually, that's a very good point that I never even thought about. To me, it was once I discovered how bad racism was, I was like, that explains it all. But from the Russian point of view, it wouldn't be too hard to underestimate Japan, considering how, like, two generations before the Japanese didn't really even, they didn't even really know what it was to have a battleship. And now suddenly they had a fleet of them. But then at the same time, I suppose I contrasted that with how quickly the Japanese beat the Chinese a decade before that in the Sino-Japanese War. But I suppose then again, the Chinese weren't exactly the uh, premier power in Asia, so the Japanese defeat of them, I, while it was surprising, I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't, I suppose the Russians wouldn't have compared themselves to the Chinese and they would have just seen it as an inter-Asian squabble that they were far too far above to, to compare right. to themselves or even to learn from as well. It didn't seem like, when I investigated that conflict, it didn't really seem like any... Western countries were even investigating it to see what was going on, like in terms of the battles and everything else, because it didn't seem like they could learn from the Asian example, which sounds awful. But again, it's the it's the the racism coming into it. But you mentioned something interesting there about it being a spoken kind of medium and 
having to not necessarily be careful of what you say, but maybe you, you need to give it some extra thought rather than just writing it down because as much as people accept that it's not your opinion, when it comes from your mouth, it's it's almost a whole different story than if it was just your writing words. So do you find, I mean, you gave the example of this here, but do you find you've had to double think again in, in other situations with this? Like, has there either been any other i mean you'll certainly come across it when you're covering the civil rights movement i'm sure you're really looking forward to that if you cover it in any uh, in any sense either in ireland with in northern ireland in the in the 1960s or certainly in the in, in america as well during that time period but i mean do you think that it's very important to kind of bear in mind that people could get offended have you found that you've had to kind of hold yourself back before um i I have talked about race relations in the united states quite a bit that was an important issue in america at this during this period in the early 20th century the um naacp was founded in 1909 um there were a great deal of lynchings going on in the south at that period in american history the legal rights of african americans was actually moving backwards Mm which is a, a thing. Another thing, at least when in America, when we talk about American history, we don't like to cover that. But African-Americans were actually in a better state legally and economically just after the Civil War in the 1870s, 1880s than they were in 1900 or 1910 because there was a deliberate backlash to of laws and the illegal, illegal scheme designed to limit the rights of African-Americans. Mm. Yeah. So... Do you find yourself, I mean, this is a general historical question, but have you found yourself cringing or or flinching when you uncover these kinds of things? I mean, I'm sure you'll encounter it more, but is there anything that really stands out to you when you are researching, like any, you know, this this can be anything at all, not necessarily Russo-Japanese related, but because it's fairly obvious now that we're talking all over the shop, but is there anything that really stood out to you that kind of made you think, oof, that's, that's, that's not good kind of thing? Well, again, in terms of race relations in the United States, a lot of this history we just don't talk about. Or at least we didn't when I was a kid. I'd like to think that things have improved since then. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of this was not known to me, and I think it's important for people to understand it today. Again, with the interdisciplinary approach of the history of the 20th century, I like to pay attention to race relations I like to pay attention to the status and role of women mm. in the society at the time. I like to talk about LGBT people. Mm. I, you know, I've Roger Casement. I'll mention since you're Irish. Yeah, uh, a fascinating, fascinating story. His role in uncovering the uh, crimes in the Congo. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the que- and the question that because he was a gay man, by you know, to all appearances, was not ashamed of his sexuality, but was very careful to keep it quiet. The, you know, living that kind of life, did he understand or empathize with the um, oppression of the people in the Congo better because of his experience as a gay man? Mm. I think that's a really interesting question. That is an interesting question. Yeah. And of course, when we get to the Easter Rising, which I haven't gotten to yet in my podcast, <laughs> Good Roger, Roger, <laughs> Roger Caseman comes back into the story. This is the kind of thing I love when I do the history of the 20th century. M- mention a name or a place or an event here and then come back to it 20 episodes later and mm. say, well, here it is again in a whole new, you know, in a whole new way. It's going to influence the story in a whole new way. Yeah. I really get you with that point, like the whole kind of accidental continuity kind of thing, especially mm-hmm. when you when you surprise yourself as well. And you think, oh, that sounds familiar. It's like, no way. It's the same guy that, that did this and did that. And yeah, like the, the whole underrated figure idea that 
we're so focused on the big names in history, we forget that there is many heroes that just, or, or even significant figures that just haven't really been uncovered yet. And it's it's great in in the in the positions we're in that we're able to unearth them and present them to other people. And I think that's where we were talking at the start, where the whole idea of an exciting tangent comes from. Mm-hmm. Like the likes of Roger Casement, who is an incredible story, really. Everything from his role, and now I, and anyone who's listened to my Rising special knows that I don't, I don't identify with the Rising. I don't like the Rising. I, I, res, I respect and I do my best to understand the people that took part in it. But I appreciate Roger Casement's humane concerns and his experience from being in the Congo and what he uncovered there, and basically making his name in that kind of journalism and then detective work, essentially. And then coming back, and you're 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 dead right. I think from that experience, really shaped him and made him a more compassionate person. To the extent that when he got involved in the Irish struggle, if you like, he was able to identify on a humane level with the rebels. Maybe he didn't necessarily right. approve of their of their means, but my like myself, I would be able to understand where they're coming from. Uh, oh, and I, and I guess I should add for the benefit of both of our Irish listeners that, of course, Roger Casement's experience being an Irishman working in the British government. Mm. And that, that's that's another way in which I'm sure he felt like someone who's never going to quite be accepted as an equal. And uh, again, you know, when he's in the Congo, studying the situation in the Congo to empathize with the Congolese people in a way that a lot of Europeans couldn't, you know, that all, all the, these elements in his background and how that how that affected his his a perspective on the situation in the Congo. Fascinating thing to think about. It is, yeah. And and the racism there, it's it's it bleeds into the likes of the racism in Asia. And it's interesting as well because Russia did consider itself in technical terms a European power, at least on the same level it considered itself certainly as a as a Western power. I mean there was latent ideas of racism in in the German psyche certainly that didn't see well, and now it wasn't as pronounced as it would be later on in, in Nazi Germany. But while it, while it was accepted, say, like, oh, it, it, the French and, and like the Western Europe, if you like, and Russia was able to just kind of just pip itself into that kind of block of Western Europe because of its of its foothold in Western Europe. But I think that the, the racism idea is interesting because those ideas that Russia applied to Asia a lot of Europeans had seen Russia as quite backward up to that point. Up to the point, I think, that they started to be, rather than kind of looking down on Russia, they started to become afraid of Russia. I think that was an interesting change. And it, 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 it well, part of it was, was facilitated by the Napoleonic War, really. But I thought that was interesting when I was looking into it, how it changed from uh, looking down on someone to fearing someone. And in a way, that's that's racism-like defined you fear what you don't really know. Do you, do you uh, do you want to understand even what I mean by that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I hear you, and it's a constant in Russian history. Russia is geographically between Europe and Asia. Sure, but also in you know in some sense culturally, mm. it's it's a pivot point between Europe and Asia, and that Western Europeans, you know, and anybody from Germany on west, often tend to look at. Russia as being a quasi-Asian power. And the authoritarian, absolutist rule of the czars, for example, to a Western European looks an awful lot like the Chinese empire. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think what Western Europeans were 
we're quick to to think of Russia as relatively backward. And the reason it's backward is because it has this Asian influence in it. It's not mm. pure European. Yes. And, and, and Russians, on the other hand, are quick to embrace European culture and say, no, 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 we are, we are fully European. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't count us out. We are, we are fully European. See how we, we speak German at our court and our capital is called St. Petersburg. The whole, the whole nine yards, we are yeah. European. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. like that's that's very true, and the the embracing, like falling over themselves to to try and speak French, to to learn like European customs, to eat the way Europeans eat. It's very interesting that kind of. I don't think you could, could you call it an inferiority complex. Do you think? Uh, well, may, maybe, but it's, I mean, it's also a response to. I mean, we were talking about racism, and I don't know if racism is quite the word. Uh, because we think of Russians as being white Europeans, but you know, at bigotry, yes, you know, bigotry, a, a, a bigotry, a prejudice, mm. a prejudice against Russians and against Slavs, yeah, uh, generally as you know, and prejudice against Slavs is something that goes back to you know Byzantine times. That's, yeah, <laughs> that, that's nothing new. But the Russian response is no, no, no. We aren't. You know, we are. We're just as European as everyone else. Mm-hmm. We take the idea of the racism, how it was kind of spreading around, or certainly the bigotry. How do you think when, when so the, the whole Japanese declaration of war is something I always found very interesting because it was accepted at the time in the Japanese government. They tried negotiating with the Russians. They tried to kind of, okay, you Russia, you can have Manchuria if you recognize our position in Korea kind of thing. Would have been a sweet deal for the Russians. Yes, it would have been a very sweet deal. And <laughs> it I'm would sure. have been very smart to take that deal and be done yes, with it. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But of course the Russians instead say, no, 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 we want, we want a buffer, we want this part of Korea, you can have this part, uh, and only for a certain length of time kind of thing. We also want this port, by the way. Oh, and you can't do this just for good measure. I mean, the Japanese must have felt pushed into a corner really but i still find it interesting that they went on the attack even with the preparations that they had i mean it was a huge gamble wasn't it to think like do you think they would have been themselves aware of the idea that they might not be able to win but that they had to do their best because it was a desperate situation i think that's true i think at that point japan felt like their backs were against the wall and that fighting is the only option left and I also think important to note that the Trans-Siberian Railroad was not quite finished at this point, and that sure. part of the Russian diplomatic strategy was to string the Japanese along until the the rail line was finished, mm-hmm. because the Russian thinking was once we've got a fully operational Trans-Siberian Railroad, we're we're unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps the Japanese thought that too, and they were feeling under time pressure. That if we're if we're going to strike at Russia, now is better than later. Yeah, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around around the whole the psyche of the Japanese in doing it because when we think of the Japanese today, most people think of their like tenacious resistance to the end, almost in the Second World War. Had it gone another way, and had I'll, I'll have a uh, Jordan Harbor from the Twilight Histories on this, so I don't want to get too uh, alternative <laughs> historical, but. Had it gone another way and had the Japanese been forced to to resist the Russian advance a la the uh, Second World War in the Pacific, etc., do you think there would have been as much of an appetite for What I mean by that is from what you've researched, if they've been defeated or say things weren't going well and it looked like they were massively on the defensive, say they'd been pushed out of Korea and the, the Russians were kind of besieging their homeland, if you like, and 
I'd always wondered were the Japanese kind of always the same, as in like would they have resisted as fiercely then as much as they resisted fiercely during the Second World War? Like was the culture of uh, no surrender as strong at the start of the 1900s as it was then, say, by the Second World War? Or was that something that was just ingrained within the Japanese as part of their whole cultural and racial superiority that they gained from basically taking over most of Asia? Does that make sense? I, I think it's an imp- important aspect of Japanese culture and history is resistance to Chinese domination. You know, Japan was at times reduced to being little more than a satellite of China. Yeah. But Japan has always managed to maintain its cultural identity, even when they were for hundreds of years the next-door neighbor of the most powerful empire in the known world. Yeah. <laughs> right. And um, this is the, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about Japanese culture was their willingness, the Japanese willingness, even eagerness to embrace foreign ideas but make them Japanese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is something they learned from dealing with China. China was the source of innovation and improvement. And if you want the Japanese nation to survive, you're going to have to embrace those improvements. If you want the Japanese nation to survive as a distinct entity, you have to know how to make them Japanese. So I think with Russia coming along as a great power in the Far East, the the natural Japanese reaction is to treat with Russia the way we're used to treating with China. Mm. The um, the embrace of Western technology, um, yeah. you know, from 1850 to 1910, and not just the technology, but the willingness to reorganize the Japanese Navy along Royal Navy lines, and the willingness to bring in you know Prussians to t- teach the Japanese Army modern tactics. To yeah, to like accept that they had a lot to learn, really, in that kind of sense. Right, and you know, in a lot of other Asian countries like China. Um, you know, contrast it with China. Chinese are used to thinking, um, you know, and during this period that the Chinese way of doing things is the best way. It's the superior way. There is no there is no reason to adopt foreign ways because China is the the major central power, the source of innovation. There are no foreign ideas that are worthwhile. Mm. Um, that's you know that's the historical lesson that the Chinese learned. Whereas the lesson the Japanese learned is we have to try to keep up we always have to try to keep up yeah yeah i think the the startling what we were talking about at the start the way the japanese just transformed their country essentially in the space of time that they did and it's like really unprecedented do you think the international response to the japanese victory i mean it's still debated today just how significant the whole japanese victory was i would argue that it was very significant but some people try to not not talk it down but after the war the japanese didn't get everything they wanted from the peace treaty and a forgotten fact as well was that the it had cost a lot of money obviously to wage that war do you think that there was a do you think that the kind of idea that oh this is japanese coming onto the world stage this is the russians being in the decline do you think that those old accepted facts are kind of exaggerated by by historians from what you've seen no, I think it's very important. I adhere to the view that yeah, this was hugely important, that everything that Japan does afterwards, they're building on the lessons they learned in this war. And yes, you're right. Um, the war put the Japanese government deeply into debt. Japan was only able to fight the war because it could get financing in places like London and New York. Uh, and, and the Japanese were planning to charge the Russians a huge indemnity mm-hmm. to offset this debt. And then they yeah. didn't get an indemnity. Mm-hmm 
which was a problem. And it took Japan years to pay off, pay down that debt and put its financial house in order. Japan was late in getting into the dreadnought race because it couldn't afford to build dreadnoughts because it was still pay, paying off the debts from that war. Yeah. But still, they managed it. And, and you know, again, being an American and seeing Pearl Harbor as such an important event in American history, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, in American memory, the, you know, the template for Pearl Harbor is the surprise attack on Port Arthur in mm. 1904. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, big time. The- and, and the lesson the Japanese learned was... That works. Yeah. Let's do it again. <laughs> yeah, very. That's exactly it. Yeah, it did work. It did. It worked very well. It, it worked very well at Port Arthur, and it worked even better at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah, and and it's forgotten as well that it was essentially a preemptive strike by the Japanese. It wasn't as as simple. Like because we often talk about. I often run over this in the podcast. Does diplomacy actually fail or? does war come about because the other side wants it to and then you could argue well is that a failure of diplomacy in itself because had that power gotten what it wanted through diplomacy for example had the japanese been able to sort out that deal with russia had they been able to get recognition of their position in korea in exchange for manchuria then diplomacy wouldn't have failed and it's often said that war like war is just a tool of diplomacy especially with with the likes of the 30 years war what i really saw was that and and even indeed wars after that the armies actively engaged one another on the field on the understanding that the negotiations would be eased and they'd be able to get better terms should they win a battle. So I think what what I was kind of getting at was with the Japanese preemptive strike, is this really an example of diplomacy failing or do you think that the Japanese would have attacked either way had they not got their way? Like had do you think it was always within the Japanese to strike at the Russians like this? Do you think it would have happened in time? Well, again, yes, because this was an existential threat to mm. Japan. For for Russia, it's just one more bit of imperial expansion. For Japan, it's like the life or death of the nation. Yeah. In diplomatic terms, I'd like to think our diplomats today are more astute than they were in those days. In diplomatic terms, if you are negotiating with a power that feels like its back is against the wall, you need mm-hmm. to understand that and you need to take that into account in your dealings with them. And that it might be in your interest to ease off a little bit yeah. and make yeah. them not not feel so threatened. You might mm-hmm. get a better deal if they're not so scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Yeah. I just, I always find it interesting because I've been asked in the past to uh, do like a little mini series, say like when diplomacy succeeds kinds of thing. And it's it's always been interesting to me the idea that sometimes diplomacy does fail because one country wants it to. Sometimes the countries just can't work out their differences and it, it fails because a myriad of reasons. But I, I always found it interesting the idea that, that sometimes a country is so determined to go to war anyway that diplomacy never would have worked. And even like the whole like, Idea And th- this happened actually during, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese carried on as, it, I mean, there was definite tensions with trade sanctions, etc. with the Americans, but there was obviously no indication. I think it was the Japanese were even sending over a delegation or something to America a few days before the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. I just find it interesting. It's not, obviously it's not an exclusively Japanese trait because other countries have done that in the past to, like all war is deception, as, as Sun Tzu said, but... I find I find it interesting that the Japanese did this twice in the 20th century. Obviously, like you said, it worked. So so let's do it again kind of thing. 
Yes, and it worked. And one of the ironies of it, of the, the, the surprise attack on Port Arthur is that in the English-speaking world, they applauded the Japanese. There was actually no explicit provision in international law at the time that a formal declaration of war was a necessary prerequisite to an attack. Mm-hmm. So they, they were technically not in violation of international law. The Russians certainly thought it was outrageous. The, German, the Germans thought it was outrageous because they were rooting for Russia. Britain and the United States who were two countries that were skeptical of Russia's imperial expansion and were rooting for the Japanese, applauded it. It's great. And, of course, there's an irony there, that, which I noted in my podcast. Okay, America, you... You think that was really clever. Okay. (laughs) I will keep that in mind. Maybe I can impress you again someday. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we're, we're coming to, we're coming to the end of our, of our conversation here, Mark, but I'd just like to ask you if you were to, if you were to kind of not, not put into, to words, obviously, because you'll have to put it into words, but I mean, if you were to say, describe how important do you think the Russia Japanese war is to not just Russia and Japan and the First World War, but to like the entire 20th century, really. How far up on the scale would you put it in terms of importance? Well, I think it was it was very important for both countries. And as you noted, defeat in the Far East um, refocused Russian attention on Europe. Mm-hmm. And it marks the end of um, Russian expansion in Asia. And of course, Russia turning its attention back to Europe leads to you know, the Bosnian annexation crisis and the Balkan Wars, and we know what comes from that. Sure. Um, for Japan, you know, I, the way I see this is Japan, Japan has spent the, the, this period very shrewdly leveraging itself up. Japan is a country with very few resources. Mm-hmm. The Japanese add to their empire and then use the, the extra resources they gain there to take the next step forward and the next step forward. And it kept working for them until um, 1945. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was, it, it is tempting. All right. To see it as a, as a, a step process, like a stepping stone that one event leads to the next, especially with the weakening of Russia after this war, especially in the eyes of Germany, the idea that then Britain has to step in to kind of, alleviate the pressure that was at this stage on France because its partner had weakened and there was a suspicion that Germany might attack France to take advantage of a weakened Russia. Of course, this didn't materialize because the Germans weren't at all ready for war, but this idea then highly motivated the conservative government at the time and really made British opinions kind of see Russia as not necessarily its only enemy anymore and that maybe Germany was more dangerous than perhaps they initially thought and I don't want that to I I, I always don't I'm always aware of falling into the trap of presenting the first world war as inevitable and the first thing that I the the first thing that I wanted to change when I was doing the July crisis was (laughs) let people was let people know that I was wrong in my first world war special and at the time when I was doing that I thought to myself this is going to make me look really stupid but since then, I've been told that they like how I thought a certain way in the First World War and then changed my tune two years, or actually like a year and a half later. To me, that made me seem like, in my head, it seemed like I was a fickle historian or amateur historian, what have you. But people thought that that was nice because it showed that, well, like, number one, I'm human. And number two, you can have your opinions changed when when you see uh, when you see what the information actually says. So, yeah, that's a roundabout way of me saying that 
I do like the idea of the kind of how these events lead to first the First World War and then end up shaping our, our history in, in the 20th century, which, of course, is is your baby as a subject. <laughs> do you find, just to close on a kind of, maybe this isn't a great way to close, but I, I like the idea that, that we we can rely sometimes too much on the kind of stepping stone idea. Do you find yourself sometimes fighting against, not cliches in the 20th century, but the idea that something is inevitable or that it's not? Do you like to think of yourself as kind of revisionist? Or maybe maybe revisionist is a dirty word, I'm not sure. (laughs) Have you found yourself looking ahead or even the stuff you you've done already and that you basically you changed your own mind by by researching something well of course you change your mind all the time as new facts come to light no i don't think it makes you look foolish zach when you change your mind i think it gives you lends you credibility your conclusions are more credible if you demonstrate that they're based on facts Sure. And not on and not on your pre-existing opinions. And of course, as new facts emerge, it's not only okay, but it's imperative that you change your mind to accommodate them. You know, in term overall, in terms of history, I guess you you raise what is maybe the fundamental question of history and what historical events are the inevitable outcome of huge social and economic and political trends that are not the acts of any one person or any small group of people versus historical events that do in fact happen only because one person or a small group of people made a decision or even something happened accidentally and Mm. triggered a historical change. And that's our job as historians is to try to suss that out Mm. and, um, and make the case for why was, why was this an inevitable trend or versus why was this something that was one foolish decision or maybe one very clever decision (laughs) <laughs> yeah. One of my professors used to say, rather than events, dear boy, events, it's human beings, dear boy, human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think the unpredictability of, of human nature, rather than the kind of concrete setting of certain events leading to this and then to this, I think has always appealed to me more, especially kind of as I've not, not gotten older, because it's only been five years since I've done this, but as as I've kind of grown up and, and researched more, I've kind of seen that history is less set in stone and it's more human beings. So by its very nature, you can't really necessarily say that this always led to or was bound to lead to this. Which, yeah. Anyway, I really want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Mark. And say someone wanted to find uh, history of the 20th century, what would be the best place to look for it? Well, there's our website, historyofthe20thcentury.com. That's all written out. Or, uh, and, of course, the usual podcast places, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. We're on Twitter at, at History20th. That's History20th. And on Facebook, there's a Facebook group. So everyone is welcome to all of those places. Great. Well, thanks again <laughs> so much for coming on. You've been a, a, great, a great guest for me to throw very vague and, and ambiguous questions at you. <laughs> so thanks for tolerating me. And I'm sure my listeners will be very happy to listen to your treasure trove of, uh, of episodes. It's been a great deal of fun, Zach. We should do this again sometime. We should and we will. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> uh-huh, sure. So how did we do? I really enjoyed myself. You might have noticed I went on a good few tangents and probably talked far too long and probably should have just asked more direct questions. But I think with these collaboration episodes, because I'm not always I like that's no, let me put this in a different way. I like the idea of 
having some questions ready, but also not having it all completely planned out. Because it's good sometimes to make it up as you go along because you can discover fun things and you can bring things that you might not have expected to talk about out into the open. And I think that's always worthwhile to do. I also, I don't want to make it sound like I'm some kind of rock star, but some people have said to me that they appreciate when they see not different sides to me, but when I might talk about things I wouldn't normally talk about, or when I talk about experiences in this podcast or experiences in my life, say, that I wouldn't normally talk about. So these tangents are a great opportunity. I'm calling them tangents rather than collaborations. That's not fair. Basically, these collaborations are great chances to see Zach Twomley and When Diplomacy Fails in a different light because it's far less scripted. It's less controlled as well, as you can tell, but it's also a great kind of medium, I think, to deliver a different podcast product. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed this collaboration on the Russia-Japanese War. Remember to check Mark Painter out, historyofthe20thcentury.com. A huge thanks again to him for being such a great partner and guest for this collaboration. There's a few more to come, guys. Just in case you didn't know, I planned a lot of these out. So hope you're ready for some more joint Potter action. Right, well, that's me done for this episode, at least. Not for the remastered special at all, because there's a whole boatload of information still to come, because you guys deserve it, and happy birthday to When Diplomacy Fails and all that. So, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Remember to be fit and support us through the usual channels. WDFpodcast.com, become a history friend, all that jazz. Support me, tell people about this, and keep on doing what you're doing, because you're doing it great. I really appreciate all you guys' feedback and I've really been enjoying giving all this stuff to you guys. If you'd like to give a bit to me, wdfpodcast.com. Anyway, thanks for listening and I will see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.